Hello, this is Matt Hale with the Art Monthly Talk Show. I hope you can all hear me. We're in a crowded studio tonight. We've got four writers from Art Monthly. This is the Art Monthly Talk Show based on the April 2019 issue 425. So um, without further ado, I'll just say one thing, which is that you can subscribe to Art Monthly, which is a print magazine and a digital magazine. And the cheapest way is direct debit for £39 and you get 10 issues, which is quite a lot. They come once a month, except you get double one in the summer and double one in the December-January period. So, I shall say hello to the guests, starting with Jamie Sutcliffe, who is going to be reviewing Callum Hill Crow Trap, as in he did review it in the magazine and we're going to talk about it. And then we've got... Catherine Lloyd, sorry, hello Jamie, sorry. Hey Matt. It's good to hear your voice, we know nice who you are. Then there's <laughs> Catherine Lloyd, and Catherine um, reviewed Laura Provost in A Foreign Land. Hello. Hello. And um, we'll be discussing that show too. And then we've got George Vasey, who reviewed Reinhard Mucker. Hello George. Hello. I think that's how you say Reinhard Mucker, do you that's say it that I way? I say it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are you guys sharing mics? You can hear them, all right? Maybe move them in a bit, you're all right. And then um, John Parton, who is new to the programme, which is great. Um, and John um, reviewed a Whitechapel show called Is This Tomorrow? Hello, John. Hello. Hi. Now, I don't know if any of you want to... I've, I've forgotten to sort of say what you all do. I know that George is at the Wellcome Trust now, but I'm sure that's not all you're doing, George. What do you do at the Wellcome Trust, George? I am a curator. Sorry. Working, <laughs> looking at the wrong person. <laughs> it's all right. I'll just close my eyes and do it. It's his radio after all. Okay. So sorry. I don't know why I was doing that. George, tell me. Uh, I work as a curator at the Wellcome Trust and I'm working on an exhibition that opens next month, actually. Good. Um, Give it a plug. Go on. Yeah. Joe Spencer and Ashry Misbehaving Bodies. Oh, yeah. That's um, an interesting combination. Yeah. Opens 29th of May and runs until January 2020. And you're in the, in Houston, Houston Road? Yeah. Opposite Houston Station. Yeah. That's in London, in case you're somewhere else. Yeah. And Catherine, what, what, what do you do? I'm a writer and an editor, and I am an editor at Central St. Martin's Art College. Okay, right. And John, mm-hmm. what about yourself? So I work for Lawrence King Publishing in London, and I commission the art list there. So oh, great. I don't have any specific books to plug, but if you want to buy an art book, buy a, <laughs> buy a Lawrence King book, <laughs> basically. I think it's the least we can do. Second enough. <laughs> I have to say, all these writers here come, out, come voluntarily, having been paid to write something, they don't get paid to come on the radio program, which is rotten. Jamie, tell me about you, even though I did look at you thinking you were George, <laughs> I'm saying that again, which I should never look down ever again. Um, yeah, I'm a writer and I co-direct Strange Tractor Press. Thank you very much. And Jamie, we're going to start with you, yeah. um, if we don't mind. So, as I said... Um, uh, just before we go into the art that we, was that you saw, I'm quite interested to, to know, you probably don't know loads about it, but Lux is where mm. the show was. Mm, mm. And Lux has had a long history, and I, mean, I remember being involved with it vaguely years ago, when it used to be in Hoxton Square, mm. and was run by a man who then came <coughs> to run the ICA, and now blah, blah, blah. But now it's in a, where? It's in Wat- Waterloo Park in Highgate. Which sounds very, and it's very a, pleasant. Yeah, it's it's really really beautiful space they've got. Um, there's a program at the moment called Black Box, uh, where they're utilising their archive and their exhibition space to show a series of experimental film works. Right. Um, but it's really worth heading along to for for the archive alone. I think there's an amazing um, open access public library of works on structural film, experimental film the politics of, of filmic image. Yeah, um, so, so they do specialise in a particular kind of yeah, archive. Yeah, yeah. It's not just 
any old film. No, no, it's like exclusively. So for artists, it's a very good resource. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for artists' film specifically. Yeah, a long time yeah. ago, I was taught by Anne Rees Mogg at Chelsea School of Art, and she was a structuralist kind of filmmaking. Mm, we mm. saw lots, saw lots there, which was great. But to be able to go and yeah, yeah. look at them now is uh, good stuff. Okay, so. Yep. What did you see? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm going to talk about uh, Callum Hill's uh, show, Crow Trap. Um, and I, I sort of felt that I might have to give a little bit of a disclaimer before I actually talk about the, the film, and that's <laughs> that I have a sort of long-standing personal impatience with a certain kind of artist filmmaking that um, declaratively uh, states its politics and its sort of surrounding material, but then doesn't necessarily perform that politics in the, in the film work itself and maybe sort of masks those politics with an evasive uh, sort of filmic language. Um, And this show uh, completely uh, recalibrated my expectations. So it's an optimistic thing you're going to do. Oh, good. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And and the way that it did that really simply was by showing two two films simultaneously, um, one that was incredibly impressionistic and and poetic, and another one which was um, sort of devoutly polemical and, and kind of pragmatic. And there was something really productive for me personally in the space that was created between those two films. How are they, how are they exhibited, by the way? There is, are they, is it a projection? Or is it on a? I mean, because it's an archive. I'm imagining you're sitting in front of a computer. Yeah, I, mean, I think they they kind of prioritise uh, sort of absolute fidelity to the artist's intentions with with um, projection methods. So I think there's Great. you know there's also I, I don't know if this was a digital film or a 16 mil projection. I think it was no, it was digital. Um, but then there's a smaller screen in the archive which had a second film. But, um, yeah, to basically explain um, what the, the sort of title film was, Crow Trap. Yeah, which is um, a very odd name, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it, it takes its name from um, a trapping apparatus that gamekeepers would use in sort of moorland or heather, heatherland. Well, you um, mean like in Victorian times or something? Can't, no, they're still, still they used, still do still it. used today, yeah. I yeah, yeah. That. yeah. And um, the, the, the the sort of device itself works as a as a kind of metaphor um, for, for a political moment at present. That, so the way the trap works is that you would use um, a small bird as bait, and you would bring. Um, I, I guess you would hope to attract other birds that might interfere with crops or um, a sort of natural habitat like uh, crows, rooks, and ravens. And as a result of this trap um, being employed, both birds um, exist in a state of like indefinite distress. Yeah, so horrible. They're it, called corvidae, by the way. It was a lovely yeah, word yeah, you yeah, use in your yeah. review. C-O-R-V-I-D-A-E. Never heard of it before. Rooks, ravens, crows, magpies. Yeah, yeah. So that, that image kind of comes up quite frequently, but um, just the film itself has a very strange um, economy of, um, of images and the way that images are employed. And it starts in quite a straightforward way with this handheld shot um, of the artist walking through Tate Britain in pursuit of one of Turner's unfinished landscapes. And I think the kind of poetic impact of that, that term, unfinished landscape, is, is, is really resonant at, at this moment. And the, the camera sort of traverses the galleries at Tate Britain finds this landscape on the wall, but then takes this kind of detour into a multi-faith contemplation room. And then it sort of rests in this room. And you start to think, oh, th- this doesn't look like a particularly pleasant place to be. It looks more like a deportation cell than a, than a space of quiet reflection. So the introduction to the film has this very kind of ominous um, opening quality. Um, and then it kind of moves on through this series of uh, images that are derived from the lives of two characters that are sort of very vaguely defined, but that both have a relationship to fire in one way or another. 
Fire, fire is a big part of this. Yeah. So in, in the review, I describe um, Fire as the real kind of poetic antagonist. And there are kind of real-life characters that come into the film, both in terms of characters that she films or characters that Callum talks about, historical characters like Mary Richardson, the suffragette activist. But Fire is the kind of um, central character in terms of um, the, the, the real kind of subject of the film. Like, it's, it's this sort of metaphorical pliancy or the kind of mercurial quality of Fire that um, I think she's using in, um, in a way that's sort of analogous to... Um, a kind of political mood of the present. <laughs> so um, we're all burning, yeah. folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite, it's got quite like a sort of ominous tone to it in lots of in lots of ways. So um, Mary Richardson is um, the suffragette activist who notoriously um, staged different displays of property and vandalism. Um, in, in the name of women's rights. Um, the most notorious uh, case that she was known for was the slashing of the Rockaby Venus, the Velasquez painting. Um, but she was also a, a keen arsonist. And <laughs> d despite her progressive politics early on in life, she ended up becoming a member of the British Union of Fascists. Yeah, no, your, your, your review did so, take some twists and turns because I was kind of warm to her to begin with. And then yeah. Fascism flopped in. Yeah, yeah. So um, she kind of comes into the film at the outset um, as this kind of uh, marker of political transience and um, I guess a kind of dubious evolution of political thought. Um, and Callum keeps referring back to this idea of um, fire being an entity that both uh, cleanses and regenerates but also destroys. So there's a, yeah, a kind of... Um, a, a strong sense of how um, these these sort of, sort of sorts of images are being employed poetically, maybe in a kind of political sense. Um, yeah. So there are these other two characters that are um, uh, they, they have kind of appearances in the film. One is a, a German guy who's the proprietor of a coal yard, um, the sort of perimeter of which is constructed from remnants of the Berlin Wall. Um, and then on the other side of the European divide, there's a Yorkshire heather burner called George Thomas. And even though it's not sort of mentioned in the film, in the supporting materials, you become aware that he was a witness to the Piper Alpha oil rig disaster in the North Sea in 1989. And um, you kind of get these sort of vague glimpses of these two characters whose relationship with combustion um, is kind of either uh, sort of therapeutic or cathartic or, or um, a reflection of some kind of historical trauma. Very, very interesting. I thought. I thought. I looked at a bit, a bit online. Did, did you see it? Did you well, see I, the I, film? Well, no, I have confessed not to see the whole thing. But okay. I thought, but I thought it was very atmospheric. Yeah. And it's, the sound is very important. It's, I it's a weird one to, to describe in a way because it's not. It's. I mean, it's linear in the sense that it has a start and a conclusion, right? But it's in terms of the imagery and the way that it's used, it's um, it's akin to a kind of like a cinematic reverie, which is a, re a really sort of overused term. But the way that I experienced it was to just sit in front of it for an hour and a half and just let the images kind of wash and then try and pick out some kind of meaning afterwards. But I think the initial engagement with it was, um, for me, one of just sort of becoming kind of vulnerable in the face of these images and just trying to let their, their meaning work in, in their own way so before I tried up, to... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but then after watching that film, you kind of move into the archive space and there's a second film, a very, very short film, which is the, the much more polemical, straightforward one, and it's called British Summer. And it was shot, I think, in 2000, 2018? 2017. 2017. Um, 
on Midsummer. And the film starts with footage of um, Stonehenge filmed on uh, filmed at dawn, basically, when you have the um, the kind of crust, crust contingent, the sort of pa- British pagan contingent, making their summertime um, pilgrimage to to Stonehenge. Don't say a bad word about them. No, no, no. <laughs> I can't, count count me in in that grouping. Definitely, <laughs> um, I'm, yeah, I'm there sometimes. But um, yeah, so it starts with footage shot at dawn, and it has this kind of um, beautiful uh, bucolic sort of pastoral quality. Um, and then the film abruptly cuts to uh, footage of the, um, the the charred shell of, of Grenfell Tower. And over the course of a few minutes, the footage cuts backwards and forwards between these two images. So and then literally the, just comparing them, really. Yeah, in a yeah. Way. And then at the end of the film, there's um, a small body of text that just states quite openly the amount of money that's used annually to maintain the Stonehenge Monument. And then it also talks in, in contrast about the lack of um, legislative and um, compensatory um, relief that's been provided to victims so of Grenfell. So quite a powerful visual yeah, way of presenting it's, that. It's usually the kind of work that I'm really um, sl- slow to, to endorse, actually, because I, 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 I thought the bluntness of it initially was, was quite problematic. But um, looking at the two works in, in comparison... Um, I just thought they worked very well together as a, a, a as quite a sort of hopeful expression of different modes of political communication, right? Like, it, is that quite a lot shorter? The, the, the yeah, summer? yeah, it's like it's like a matter of minutes. It's, oh, yeah. Right, and when yeah, it's yeah. cutting back and forth, is there, what do you hear? Are you hearing anything? Was it you, silent? Or yeah, you're, you're hearing construction work that I think was recorded by Tate Britain. So there's just I don't I don't think it had to be recorded by Tate Britain. I think it just <laughs> um, it just needed to be a kind of sonic marker of um, construction and, and regeneration. Um, but the the thing that it really made me think of was um, a book by Patrick Wright called On Living in an Old Country. I don't know if anyone's come across this book. It's published by Verso, I think, in the in the late eighties. It's had sort of subsequent reprints, but it's it's a book about the mobilisation of heritage and how heritage might be um, recuperated or deployed to cr- create different forms of political allegiance. Right and. I think this film did a very good job of just stressing um, a, a sort of particular mode of Englishness that is being prioritised over another form of contemporary British community. Yeah. Right, makes me think um, of Jeremy Deller's bouncy Stonehenge Castle, which uh, okay, I mean that's a different yeah. approach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. say the least. Um, yeah, so. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at the time. Well, you're doing waffled, well. You're doing waffled, fine. Waffled, waffled I mean, does anyone may not have any questions for, for Jamie, but if you do, you could ask them now, or I can move on. I was thinking we would move on to George, and I'm actually looking at him now. <laughs> Very different show. Well done. Well, yeah. I mean, we, we don't pick reviews necessarily because they all go together. There are some links which we might find, but I'm not mm. sure if we're going to find them until we get to the last two. But mm. So, George, would you give us a go at um, your review, please, now? Okay. Um, well, the exhibition I reviewed was Rainer Hodmucher, um, full take at Spruth Magers. So this is a commercial gallery. Yeah. So we're going to quite a different kind of institution, aren't we, which is quite interesting. Yeah, it's in the centre of London. Um, and it was a significant show. So I'm thinking there's probably about 20 works in the exhibition. This is um, his first um, exhibition in the UK since 97. Um, so he's uh, a very significant German artist who's shown at Documenta, the Venice Biennial, hugely significant internationally. But he, um, since about 1990, has kind of slowed down the way that he works. 
Um, he's based in Dusseldorf and studied at the Academy in the late 70s under Klaus Rink. That's and a it, famous one where people like um, Joseph Boyce. And yeah, Joseph Boyce was talk, teaching there yeah, at the yeah. time. And I think he's an interesting figure because um, a lot of his work kind of riffs on uh, that kind of slightly portentous uh, post-war German conceptualism. You know, the use of vitrines, the use of felt... Uh, and kind of in some way, t- uh, you know, kind of riffing on it and, um, in a slightly absurdist way. That's I like the word riffing in relation to that because I noticed the felt yeah. and thought of Boyce and knowing mm. where he's come from, I thought there must be a reference to him, but it wasn't, like, it's, overt. It's subtle. I mean, I think that, um, I, to be honest, I'd never really seen the work before and somebody was like, this is a really interesting show and a really difficult show to write about, so I thought, OK, I'll give it a go. And it was, it was really difficult just to You actually did write that in your review. <laughs> it was a very difficult show to just describe because um, with, with Mucha, he kind of returns to certain elements, both conceptually and physically. He literally returns to certain works and remixes them. Um, and, re- and, and, and often his work, what you're looking at is essentially a kind of Frankenstein creation between two or three works of different eras. So, um, for instance, um, I'm trying to get the right titles here. But if you look at a work like um, Man and Frown, Man and Woman, um, Udderin and Untitled. So this is two different works from the same, from 1987 and 1981. Um, and one of the works was a, a large grey um, felt-lined uh, cube. Um, and the other one was a painting um, on, on glass um, that spelt out man and woman. Which, we, which we've illustrated with your review, with, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. And the, um, the painting um, is on two walls that are going into the corner of the room. Um, so when they're reflected, they create a kind of X shape. Um, and the titles, man and woman, reflect back on each other. So I write about in the review that I think the work is about kind of looking at the ready-made and somehow making it illegible. So his work operates on a kind of, it takes semantics or, or kind of values and kind of um, undermines them in some way. And also with the addition of the grey box, it creates a kind of very narrow corridor between these two elements that really put you up very close to the surface. And um, often in the surface of his works, you're seeing yourself reflected. And I think this does a number of things. It kind of makes you very aware of the context of the gallery. It makes you implicit within the work. He talks about the way that um, when you see yourself reflected in, your, in his work, you're kind of silenced and lonely, which I thought was quite an interesting way of talking about it. But there's something about the way that he constantly returns to and revisits and remixes, almost like a piece of music. Um, and that's what makes his work quite difficult to, to write about. And also, um, the titles become part of the work. I, know, I did notice that the show. I had mm. a discussion with someone trying to work out well, when was the work made? And we just realised, it. well, it was made then and then. Yeah, often you're looking at three different dates, but also he lists the um, the materials in the work in the order they appear in the work. So I talk about them as a kind of, kind of horizontalising of this kind of various elements. Um, and they're completely fastidiously constructed. They're beautifully made, actually. Yeah, I, I think I think he originally studied as a craftsman or a carpenter or yeah, something. So I imagine he, he must have a very, very good saw blade on his, <laughs> on his flatbed saw, for one thing. Yeah, I, I, use, I use the word, it's t- attentive, absolutely attentive to certain materials, you know, both everyday materials, but there's a kind of um, symbolism. I mean, he probably wouldn't like the word symbolism, but there's a kind of, there's certain things he's drawn towards. For me, they're redolent of a kind of post-war German municipal aesthetic. So um, train, train stations, transport uh, networks, um, things that sort of office environments. Um, 
also vitrines um, and plinths, kind of um, iconography of a museum display, um, which is where I think he's kind of riffing on people like boys. Right. Um, when I say in the review, he kind of puts it in this um, puts in the service of a certain opacity. So, um, like I say, he's not interested in the symbolism or the narrative. I think he's trying to um, make you just really draw you up to the kind of materials that he's using. And you enter this kind of world um, that he's created. I use the word lexicon. So I think there's a kind of grammar to the way that he uses certain and returns to certain materials. And that means, because that word comes up again, we'll probably mm. mention it again, but it, it, it is like your own language, a personal yeah. language. Is that what that lexicon means? Yeah, it is. I think it's something that you pick up on um, in the Lower Provost yeah, um, that's, that's right. yeah, review. And it's this idea of artists, in a sense, creating their own lexicon. It takes... It takes time to enter that world, right? But when you have entered that world, it starts to make its own kind of sense. Um, and it's, it is a type of slow art, as we were talking about before. And that kind of attentiveness, I mean, it literally can take him many years to make these works, mm. which is why I think he uh, hasn't shown in the UK for so long, because, mm. um, you know, he keeps them in his studio and um, they, they take on, I think of them as almost like bodies, they take on the kind of lived experience of his studio space and his everyday experience, you know. Uh, there's a quote that I came across earlier where he talks about his work. He says he's like a craftsman tinkering in the gap between where art ends and daily life begins, which I thought was quite a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. There's, there's one work which has a, mon a, a monitor in it and, and emits yeah. sound, mm. which was, I mean, not, not yeah. what I expected, but yeah. it worked. I mean, literally, a lot of the work incorporates old documentation of previous works. I mean, there's a kind of... Um, you mean like in photographic form, Photographic and video form, yeah. I mean, the work that I was thinking... Of, it, it, I mean, there's one work where he um, is incorporating his work from his degree show um, at Dusseldorf Academy, which took the form of a wall. So he, his contribution to that exhibition was, a, was building a wall for other people to host their work onto. Right which of that era, people like Michael Asher, Christopher D'Arcangelo, people working with the context of the gallery. So the gesture and the labour was rendered invisible. And what he's done is kind of brought that into a more recent work um, and actually incorporated uh, another artist, Isolde Waldron's painting in this work. So it's kind of being hosted and hosting, and it's looking back. So there's these complex kind of uh, mechanisms that are happening in the work which incorporate time. And I think, um, like I say, it's a kind of like a body, you know, it becomes this, and if it was to be shown again, he would probably change it in some way. So it raises interesting questions about where the work stops and starts. Which I thought, particularly because it was in a commercial gallery, was quite interesting in itself. Could you give us mention a story? Was it? I think it was you who mentioned it a bit about how he'd sold something. Mm. But he wouldn't let it go. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, it reminds me of like stories with people like uh, you know Francis Bacon famously tried to get one of his paintings back from Tate didn't to finish they? it, and they refused the the, the request. <laughs> um, it makes more more sense with Mooker. I would have thought though, because mm. he's so involved with time mm. and 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 layering, and so in a way, how do you ever finish anything? I mean, I find that quite. Well, I wonder whether it has something to do with the relation to um, you know what we were talking about before. You. Um, uh, talking about reverie, you know, this idea of like a kind of getting lost in this hermetic world almost. I mean, it does, it is a sort of world that you enter and immediately like you're trying to figure out what's going on. It, it sort of, 
uh, there's, it's quite um, obfuscating, um, mm-hmm. and you really have to spend time with it. To but not me. not annoying, because I mean, for some people mm. that could, I mean, that it could be really but there's put almost, you off because you can't get in, or it's yeah. too private, or and there's physical parts of the surface that obfuscate. I mean, often he creates these kind of we call pictures, but they're essentially assemblages of materials, and then often sandwiches. He puts a glass on the front that are, they're actually painted, but they look like they're screen printed, and they look like train tracks or grids. So there's constantly a, a sense of uh, foreground and background looking and being kind of reflected back. You saw, you're seeing your own gaze reflected back at you. Um, so you're made aware of the act of looking and seeing or not seeing. Yeah, I thought the glass was very sensitively used. Yeah, and um, yeah, he talks a bit about like the notion of undoing. Um, but these, you know, this notion of taking something and framing it or elevating it um, within the exhibition context, but actually. Um, yeah. Good. <laughs> well done, George. Thank you very much. Thank Said you. Said the teacher. <laughs> so sorry. That's awfully <laughs> Anyway, I think we should um, let our first timer have a go. Okay. <laughs> so this is John Parton. He's going to talk to us about Is This Tomorrow? Now, John, just before we go any further, I know we don't. There's other people in the room may actually also know a bit about this because I don't know much. But this show you reviewed at the White Table is based on, at least the title is based. We will argue about or not argue about whether the show does it, but it was based on a show called This Is Tomorrow. Exactly. From 1956. Yes. So this is tomorrow. Was as you say was was at the White Chapel in 1956 and. Um, has uh, we were talking about this before, but has really gone down as a sort of seminal show in a way, um, in that it, it, it's been sort of hailed as launching the careers of a of a sort of generation of British artists. So uh, everyone from Richard Hamilton, Colin St. John Wilson, Alison and Peter Smithson, Eduardo Paolozzi. So they were they were exhibited at this show and. Um, uh, sort of, we all know where their careers went from there, basically. Yes. And it was very highly visited. I mean, there were massive numbers of people. I mean, it sounded a bit, reminded me of something like the, what was the, the Festival of Britain or something? Yeah. It sounded a bit almost like a kind of art show like yeah. equivalent or something, which is incredible. Really. And it, you get a sense that the original show had that, had a similar sort of post war vibe, basically, of kind of, oh god things have been so awful for so long we've had rationing we've had the war we've had all this destruction we've had all you know all this absolutely terrible business and then you so it's it's which could be defined as post-war optimism basically yes yes so now now i think the title says it all really yes. so now we have is this tomorrow question mark yeah, um, so one was a statement yeah and this is a this is a question mark which um half a century or slightly more later is that that question mark becomes quite important um and the it, it's um it's a brave show which is sometimes a sort of polite way of saying a, a little bit of a disappointing show which which for me it, it, it was a little bit um it takes on it takes on exactly the same um sort of premise in that it uh it takes 10 groups of largely artists and architects links them together gave them each a ten thousand pound budget and then sort of threw the future open to them um, so, get the, so they knew the title of the show yes as as obviously the people in the, the last show before and they were also architects in so in yes this is tomorrow that was also artists and linking up with architects, architects which i think is quite interesting 
questionable thing or difficult thing mm -hmm. to do anyway. I mean, I was thinking that an architect is somebody who, I mean, I know they understand space and everything, but not, they don't necessarily understand exhibiting uh, or, or, or how to work with an artist. I mean, they know how to work with people who make things, but they're quite... quite so it's quite a risky yeah, combination, yeah, yeah. although it could be interesting. I have to say, I've worked with an architect myself, but it was... But not in an exhibition, and, and working well within their, you know, say they did a house, yeah. and then yeah. I came in and sort of did something within the house. Yeah. But but it's still not easy. It's uh, it's it, no, it's not easy. But I think that's only that's definitely one of the challenges. But I think that's actually that's only one of many challenges that this exhibition threw at the teams that it put together. I I mean, I think going back to the original show that, that that's been so well documented and that actually some of the pairings already had a had a bit of a relationship. They knew each other a little bit, which I would imagine if you're going to embark on something like this, probably makes it slightly easier, makes it slightly more productive and slightly more organic, basically. Whereas um, I don't think that that happened with this show. Uh, I mean, one of um, one of the uh, one of the pairings. There's a there's a story that they even they even had to um, they didn't actually meet. They had to they had to do this over Skype. Basically, they did their collaboration over Skype. And I think to some extent that shows in the in the final work. There seems to be a bit of a of a kind of. Um, Do you mean the balance is different, say, or say that like, what, because the one who was actually there and in the room <laughs> had a bit more <laughs> no, say? I, I just mean on a very basic level that that, communi that you'd want to the, communicate as yeah. clearly as you possibly could, and yeah. that, you know nobody a, a Skype conversation is just is Not really far from ideal, basically. Yeah, yeah, I know you didn't say who it was. <laughs> it's just because I can't remember actually. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, freely, freely, freely admit. Gotcha. <laughs> Thanks for that. Do carry on. Um, so, uh, as I say, I mean, the, I, I keep talking about the challenges of this, sh of this show for the, for the groupings and really the biggest challenge of them all is, um, to be, to be thrown this overall, um, framework, which is essentially to say, uh, what is the future, which for anybody is a hard enough question. I mean, the future is always this incredibly intangible, hard to pin down, tricky thing to imagine, let alone to then sort of um, enact into some form of artwork or, or piece of architecture. Um, it, uh, I mean, that's a sort of roundabout way of saying um, it's an extremely wide brief, really. Uh, and I think that kind of, th that sort of shows in the projects that are exhibited in the they are there is a huge amount of variety in terms of what the thing is what 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 i think they're trying to say how successful or not they are in saying that um and in sort of different aspects of the future of of of, of um whether it focuses on sort of society or the creative act or our relationships with animals or the environment or the future of cities i mean really these 10 works are absolutely all over the place in terms of of what they look at um so it really is it's a show that again i i found quite difficult to write about which is sort of becoming the the theme of the evening in the, <laughs> in the um, Cop out. when uh, <laughs> writers and to talk about <laughs> but when you um I don't know if, if the other writers in the room feel like this, but when you, I feel when you review a show, one of the automatic things I try to do is to sort of try and I try and link works together, basically, to come a, to, to to sort of guide 
guide a reader through a review and when you're when you're talking about works as diverse as these are that that becomes quite a challenge basically um i mean looking at some to give uh, you an idea of some of the things that um that are in the show uh it's so broadly it's um it's across both floors of of um the white chapel uh there are there are five works on each floor and there's a little kind of intermediary gallery in between the two which looks back to the original exhibition when you walk into onto the ground the main ground floor exhibition um right in front of you you have um by six day architects and amalia pika this um huge uh bright metal installation formed of um farming equipment essentially um and i think it literally is farming equipment it's not a sort of cipher for or, or an image of farming equipment it is farming equipment and um it's um it forms this sort of maze that that winds its way around the gallery um and do you mean like sheet pens exactly yeah so like, you'd have to walk through them yes and you can in fact you are invited to walk to walk through them and they are very pointedly at parts there's a there's a there are gates that you'd have to navigate or that that are just closed and you can't get past um part of it just sort of goes around in a circle so it sort of seems completely pointless and then the the far end of it is a sort of weird kind of playpen um that's that is actually full of full of toys but they are um they're rubber floating toys that um aquariums used used to train seals with um so you have that right in the middle which is this bizarre but quite intriguing sculpture and then flanking it you have two um uh you have uh, ajay associates and kapwani kawanga's uh sankofa pavilion and you have on the left and then you have on the right apparata and hardy pandals uh sort of pavilion as well called thugs thugz mansion um and these again these again are very different to each other um uh the sankofa pavilion is very it's very neat it's very beautiful it's very um it's quite sweet in a way it's this sort of star shaped or asterisk shaped um uh human scale pavilion built from these very sort of thick um panes arranged of what they call dichroic glass which is a glass that filters light in a specific way to so that it comes across as in these sort of very kind of ethereal but quite pretty pastel shades of blue like every day is a sunny day exactly if you're looking yeah, through it. exactly um which is what i mean by i found some of the works quite frustrating because when you're if you're looking into the future and you're thinking of the problems that, that the world is sort of faced with at the moment it really feels like the last thing we need is a sort of pretty glass pavilion to sit down it in. doesn't sound like it says much other than that th th some people will be living in these protected spaces uh, well I, but I don't even know if that's what it's trying to say it's like uh, with the cheap pen what do you think they were thinking they were saying by doing that uh, I mean is that an unfair uh, question no I, I think going back to the Sankofa pavilion I think if you want to think of what they're trying to say it's more a sense of the world the world seems very divided at the moment the very obvious examples of that in politics um, and that why can't we all just come together basically and here's a place where we can do it which um is what i mean by it seems frustrating because that's a bit like 
well, that, well, we need a bit more than that kind of thing to, I mean, we can't fix, fix Brexit by all coming together or we can't, um, you know, maybe we could, but... Uh, well, not necessarily in a glass pyramid. Uh, no, 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 exactly. That's probably the last but the, thing the other, The other piece of work you mentioned as well, that, that I've forgotten its name, but there was, wasn't there one that was all very kind of like a shack and just kind of uh, yes, like as if yes. more like for people who didn't have anywhere to live and... We'd all be living in kind of run-down Precisely. Rooms. So this is uh, Thug's Mansion, which is on, on the other side of the room. Yeah, yeah. And this is almost... This is actually very interesting to compare to the pavilion I've been talking about because this is almost deliberately very ugly, deliberately sort of anti-architecture, uh, deliberately quite kind of cynically thrown together. It essentially consists of um, a kind of huge plane of aluminium cladding propped up at a, a sort of... Uh, 45 degree angle against the wall of the gallery to f to form a sort of a shelter and this is I think what you were you were getting at before which um, my reading of it was that if you if you imagine a sort of trajectory of politics that we're on at the moment where politics really seems to be sort of slightly disappearing and becoming slightly inadequate um, and that that is possibly kind of I think the, the point that this pavilion is trying to make is that this is being mirrored in some of the creative industries. I mean, uh, a criticism of contemporary architecture is that it's, it, it becomes what architects call f mere floor plate cladding, which is that you build uh, your you, engineers build to a certain cost, a sort of skeleton for a building. And then all the architects come to do is 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 clad it basically which goes beyond what architecture from the purest sense is meant to do which is definitely handle space or make something very much more interesting than that basically so this is sort of a distillation and uh, extreme reduction of, of 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 that basically it's it's the sort of disappearance of architecture slightly before our eyes but yes as you say another strand of that is is thinking um as as more of the world's population's seems to find itself more vulnerable this could be the sort of future of yeah. of, of living in quite a um quite a sad way but i i it sounds to me like you're being quite generous now even i mean to, to, I because you're because you're giving the works a lot of that's what they might mean yes but actual fact when you go there you're probably looking at something fairly sculptural or really you know just a thing in a room that doesn't necessarily and if they're not relating to each other no, because I was thinking, well, that one, you know, one's not a utopian, one one's not utopian. So maybe they're in the same room, and they maybe they that speaks across uh, in I, that in, in a way that does then open up some kind of conversation. I I think you're right. I I, I think they do, and that's, so to a degree that, it does. To a, to a degree it it does, and that's something I took away from it. But um, I don't know if you'd get that immediately from seeing the show. I mean, I had to go away, think about it, and write about it, and as I sure. say, come up with links. And I wouldn't say. I mean, in some ways, maybe this is a nice thing, and, and this is maybe this is a personal reaction of mine that I that I know some people prefer to go to an, to an exhibition, and they don't feel like they're being guided. They don't feel like these links are sort of sure as are obvious. They're not pining for them in a way. Yeah, because um, it's, it's funny because the, the show had sort of controlling elements, but yeah, then wasn't yeah, controlling yeah, yeah, yeah. in its giving it a. An, an overview. But what about the room in the in the middle where people could could people write? Was there an area where you said it was about the the previous exhibition, the, yes. the this is tomorrow one? But was there an area where people could respond in some way in there? Did you say? Uh, I thought, I think, sorry, maybe I misheard. I thought you said that before. People maybe. people could respond, but um, yes, but there was also um, the focus of that room was more about the original exhibition, and it showed. Um, 
a series of uh, period uh, newsreel clips of um, people visiting the show in the in the fifties. So it's lots of kind of pathé uh, newsreel clips, lots of uh, announcers in kind of received pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. Um, which um, did it? Was it? Do you think it meant was meant to be a part of the whole show, really, or was it just a kind of an add-on? Because you know, because it doesn't. I can't see quite how people would get the link. No, I think probably um, uh, fundamentally it felt just just like a more of an add-on, basically. Yeah, I mean, quite an interesting one. I don't an interesting that, one. But... Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, there's that nice reflection of your. You're in um, in 2019. You're going around this show, probably worrying about the future. If you're me, and it's quite not nice, but in some ways quite reassuring to see people wandering around the show on these newsreels in 1956, also scratching their heads, also worrying about the future. Basically, <laughs> it's quite reassuring in, in an odd way. Great. Well, thank you very much for that. And and um, let's try Laura Provost. <laughs> Catherine, would you like to? Uh talk about that show because that again is a show which i and this is a link i i forced but I, I tend to try this is an artist who uses somebody else a company maybe a particular person in that company to be- help build the construction within this exhibition yeah she collaborated with an architecture studio um diego passerino who she's worked with a few times and he created the exhibition architecture basically so that he completely transformed the gallery space uh there's lots of um wooden walls and you see um the kind of beam structures there's lots of crudely cut holes which show you different works there's in in the first gallery when you when you go from the first ex, um, the first installation to the first video, you have to duck be- beneath what is essentially a massive wooden cat flap to get into the next space, which you, you might even completely miss because it's so low down. It's like about um, waist level. So you might never enter the show <laughs> you unless you're not. observant. It is. It does. And fit. <laughs> yeah, it does sort of beg to be misunderstood or misnavigated. And you go around and you're, you become very aware of everyone else because you can see people through different holes. You can see people more than you can see the work sometimes. There's light emanating from specific spaces, but you don't know how to get to those spaces. There's lots of flaps. There's lots of little doors. Um, there's lots of corners, and then there'll be a little work hidden behind a corner. Um, so it, it's definitely a massive part of the show, and it really uh, changes how you navigate it, and it's set up to make it difficult. Um, but essentially the gallery is a very long space and there's two um, two big exhibition spaces at either end and between those two spaces there are lots of large-scale installation works which are threaded throughout and then there's monologue video pieces which tie everything together. We should say it, it's at MHKA Antwerp. Mahuka, I think. Mahuka, yeah. thank you, you say it. <laughs> I think that's right, that's what I've heard people that's say. That's fine. But I was quite intrigued by this use of um, the designer to do the space because they must have had a lot of conversations. And I mean, it's like I was wondering whether it was commissioned by the artist, and you know, they they came up with like it's like so kind of professional. It's like a brief. You can imagine a brief being given, but it probably was more playful than that, I wasn't think, it? I mean, she terms it as a collaboration. I think they worked yeah. together quite closely, and because he clearly knows her practice very well and has created exhibition architecture before for her before. 
Um, they obviously know each other well and work together and, and come up with the concept. And it's made specifically for this space. Yeah, so yeah it, no, I'm sure. It's just quite unusual in a way. Yeah. It sounds it to me. I don't know. I mean, maybe it actually want artists use people on the side a lot more than we acknowledge. I don't know. I think there's a trend for exhibition architecture rising more and more. You see people kind of crafting these sets for how their work will look. And within Law's um, practice, I think it's 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 key how how you engage with work because of how, because of what she constructs. Um, I, I am going to jump on, and this was very hard to write about bandwagon. This <laughs> it was very hard to write about, but sort of the complete opposite reason to John, but similar to George, because she um, it, nothing is disparate, everything is connected. So she creates a lexicon or a vocabulary which is completely um, her own, and you enter it by entering a show, and it makes sense through repetition. But essentially, she has this kind of um, host of objects and she repeats them throughout each work and she reassigns meanings to them so she has um the octopus which appears quite a lot a flamingo which means you're angry or an orange which i think means your mother but there was actually a publication which you could get when you were there which told you that like like a kind of dictionary it's like a dictionary yeah and and it's um so it goes through the alphabet and she picks out one of her terms and she has included hand drawn illustrations and then she's got artists writers curators to um contribute texts to how they interpret each word so there's boobs bum objects octopus is there um there are lots of boobs everywhere yeah she's big into boobs yeah she's what, what are they actually made of glass murano glass oh my god and she does a lot of boob fountains um basically the boob the boob comes back to this idea that she's interested in about object relations theory and um, Melanie Klein and the fact that when we're children we um, associate with the world around us through objects and how and, and we associate meanings to them so a child will set, think of a boob as a good boob if it's feeding it but if it's not feeding it it'll think of it as a bad boob but it can't understand initially that those are, t- those are the same object so they become conflicted about the idea that they like something but hate it at the same time. And as we grow older, we come to understand that things can be two things at the same time. So in her sculptures, she tends to bring lots of boobs. So the fountain might be a composite of four or five. And if you read it kind of in a really fundamental way, I think that she's sort of saying women can be many things at the same time. And you don't have to. You can't. You don't have to be two. You can be many. And it's about the kind of the readings that are placed on on women. So she's a feminist. Yeah. De- yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Good. Um, yeah. So that's the key symbol. The boobs appear a lot. They'll be moulded to kind of surfaces of things. They they're on the tables, um, in in this waiting room installation. Um, yeah. They're, they're sort of threaded throughout, and most of her her objects are. And through that threading, they root themselves in your brain and the whole idea is that she gets you to this place called the pre-verbal so it's before you associate meanings to words which is an impossible task because conventionalism has taught us definition so we can't it's impossible to revoke those things once you've you've learned them as adults so she's she's setting herself up for this impossible task but through the kind of constant 
um, affirmation of these new meanings. So if you see an orange, this means your mother. If, oh, this means your father. If you see a blue cup, this means your mother. And the, the amount of times that you see these things go round and round and see them in the show, it sort of it doesn't do that, but it makes you realise how absurd language is and um, how arbitrary definition is. And so you get to a point where she hasn't she hasn't returned you to a state of infancy, but you start to revel in, in how language is constructed and how we misconstrue things and how things can mean multiple things at the same time. Did you keep referring to that book to remember what, what they stood for? I or didn't, did you actually find yourself, you, it didn't matter anymore, or you learnt it and then you knew? I didn't see the book until after the show. Okay. And the book, I mean, the book, you have to buy the book. Ah, so well. not everyone's going to have the book. But I think throughout the show, the amount of times that she reiterates things means that it becomes almost second nature and you know it's you mean not, to work out what she might mean becomes yeah. apparent or yeah that you you learn these meanings you learn her new meanings and it's not just within the show that's throughout her practice so okay. if you go see uh, an installation that she might make three years time she's probably still using similar meanings and similar objects um and it's interesting to that sounds like ryan reinhard um look yeah at, look at connection doesn't it I yeah mean, really it's very mm. yeah I, I, I was going to say another, an, another connection, which I, I don't know if it's common knowledge, but I found out just before Christmas that Law used to be um, John Latham's studio assistant. Mm. Ah. And so that idea of finding um, adequate sort of niches and alcoves within an architectural fabric to kind of conceal works um, yeah. reflects maybe some of the approaches that Latham had to the, mm. the modes of display at, at Flat Time House in, in Peckham. And, and also the kind of constitution, this new lexicon, um, makes me think of a more absurd and playful uh, rendition of the way that Latham had his own critical lexicon that was used to interpret his, his practice, um, which I guess is rooted in stuff like the kind of scoob experiments, you know, the kind of mastication of, of <laughs> academic texts. And, um, yeah, it's, it seems I'd never really kind of made the connection that, yeah. that sort of forcefully, but, yeah, it seems like a really sort of playful and, and sort of purposefully gendered um, elaboration of some of those concerns that maybe were there in, in Latham's practice. Does definitely. Yeah, um, and going back to the um, what George was saying before, um, he was talking about this idea that um, the artist reworks the same works over and over again. And I think Prevost does the same thing, but she doesn't actually rework the same objects. She just has iterations of the same ideas. So it builds up a similar sort of vocabulary, but not through revisiting objects themselves, but by using objects to create new objects, more and more objects, and reinforce the meanings that she's applying to them and she's wanting us to come to. Great. <laughs> We're getting near the end of the show, I think. Has anybody got any other particular questions they want to ask? It's not a problem if you haven't. Jamie? I, yeah, I've got a question for George, actually. I, I was just intrigued by, um, in your review, you, you've got this sort of almost, almost forensic um, attention to finish mm. and sort of surface quality. And I was kind of thinking, just in, in relation to um, when we were talking earlier, both of us used this term reverie, mm. I wondered whether or not you'd experienced a kind of um, a sustained mode of attention that was, was based on how impressed you were by the, the level of finish in the objects. And then mm. I wondered, by extension of that, whether or not it might be interesting to talk about the kind of labour that that sort mm. of attention might conceal. Mm. And fr frequently, I think, when I, I see a lot of 
primarily sort of digitally produced works now. Um, I'm kind of, you know, wrapped in attention. I'm like, oh, this mm. looks stunning. It's, it's kind of seamlessly produced. But those works often disguise the fact that they're made by a broader group of people, often not um, particularly well remunerated. And I just wondered whether or not he worked with studio assistants and whether or not um, that was um, accepted or, or, or open in terms of how the works were presented or whether or not it's just totally his, his work. My understanding is it's totally his work. Okay. Um, yeah. Coming from a background as a carpenter, as I was saying before, so mm. I think his earlier work, which was about disguising that amount of labour, mm. you know, the invisible wall that he was talking about in his degree show, I mean, one thing I didn't say is that the, the sides of the work, where you see the sort of layers and the construction, I mean, he ke he reveals the innards of the work, um, so you're very aware of um, how it's made and the amount of labour that's gone into it. Um, but And, of course, you know, the politics of whose labour. I don't think that's necessarily what his work's about, mm -hmm. but I completely understand if you have... Um, so you're watching a, a moving image work which has animation in it that's been outsourced mm. to to labourers that aren't getting properly ruminated or um, you know that are working with mm. interns, for instance. But that's not the impression that I have. His work is really like, almost like autographic, like mm. it's about mm. the artist's hand. Um, you're talking about like reverie. I think for me it was about attentiveness. Um, I think that. I could imagine that he, for him it was a certain amount of reverie of mm. sort of almost like there's a labour in it but like being in the studio and just thinking and waiting for mm. something mm. to kind of occur and it's kind of old fashioned in a way isn't it like yeah, this idea yeah. of this artist sitting in a studio and just like looking did you feel a sense of that vicariously do you think yeah yeah, yeah. it's a bit precious okay. almost like I use the word hermetic it feels like it's created this, uh, its own world um I mean, if, I, if that's all I saw going around galleries, I'd start to find it a bit irritating. But there's something <laughs> about um, someone who's really kind of followed that dogmatically over 40 years. Yeah, I mean, I think you don't see that much of that no, now. So no. therefore, I found it quite refreshing to see now, but equally mm. to see a, a Provost show, which is almost, it sounds like a bit like a, I haven't seen it, but it sounds a bit like a sort of set making and environment making and it's obviously got lots of people involved in it i don't know who makes all her glass she um everything every object in her practice has kind of hallmarks of the handmade so they're always a bit shoddy or a little bit crumpled or you can see fingerprints in them and she uses for the for the murano glass i think she uses local craftsmen um but she often talks about her grandparents being part of her practice. And she has these tapestries in the exhibition, which she says that she worked on with her grandmother. And then they were sent to Belgium, I think, to be produced. But the, her grandparents are this mythology where you don't know what's real and what's false. You're not false. really sure they existed. Yeah, you'd, you'd, <laughs> her grandfather is, is supposedly uh, a friend of Kurt Schwitter's and is an artist who dug a tunnel in the 1970s or something and hasn't been seen since. And then her, her grandmother... I think, a, I think that's a combination of some living artists, probably. Yeah. But the, the, it, it, I think it's roots. There's some truth in it, but you don't know what the truth is. Um, and so she has a lot of references to digging and tunnels and her grandfather, but they do become myth, and a lot of her life becomes myth. Um, and her collaborators are sort of part of that myth, but you see them in the work, that they're handmade, and you can the see... The yeah, touch. Yeah. yeah. It's a different kind of veiledness, in a way. Mm. I wonder whether this idea of labour, I mean, in Laura Provost's work, it becomes a cipher for something authentic um, or domestic. Yeah. Um, and I think of her work, I think of um, children's stories and kind of, um, she's a storyteller, but there's a makerliness to it, a painterliness. And I think, again, with Reinhard Mucha, 
that, that's not really his formal iconography, but there is a very much a kind of a, t- uh, a, a kind of earnestness almost. Uh, and I think Laura, the, the power of Laura's work is this kind of earnestness put into service of something that's very playful and absurdist. So yeah. I think this idea of labour is quite interesting in relation to that regard. When you think mm. about video editing, because I was talking to um, Liz Price recently, and it was like hours and hours rendering things and, mm. and, and layering sounds. And, you know, it's a funny kind of the construction of it. it you can't see it when you're experiencing it. That's, mm. the, that's the problem with the digital thing in a way isn't it that you were saying Jamie it's yeah, like yeah. it's invisible yeah and yeah. all the people who've helped is, is invisible yeah well, yeah it's quite interesting that that it's not so much so in these other works I mean in, in the one in the Sharon Whitechapel John it's quite <coughs> many multi-materials are used some of mm. them I imagine you could sort of imagine them putting them together and others you probably would they were like hands off no exactly and um, I know that um sort of just budget and labour are two separate things, but it, but as a, as a, this is more of an aside, really. But it was just interesting to see what this what groups of artists would do with the exact same budget, which was ten thousand pounds, and it was actually also quite interesting just to go to an exhibition where you knew how much it each artwork could cost to make to make actually, which is yeah, quite a, a bit unusual, quite an unusual and rare thing. I once ran a gallery for a year. No. Yes, no, 10 grand was a year's sh- eight shows or something. Right. <laughs> I'm quite surprised I saw that show and I'm quite surprised they all had the same budget. It I doesn't mean, quite seem real, does You mean it? you think or they right. couldn't, the, yeah. the materials were too expensive in some? Well, some of them, it's like, you sure they didn't have some support from commercial galleries? Well, you tend, I mean, you you tend to think that, um, going back to the glass pavilion, that, that, that those panes of glass must have cost a lot of, like a hell of a lot of money, basically. Mm. Um, I should imagine a bit, a bit of donation went on, don't Something. you? Some of those architects might have had some materials left over. Something lying around. Some mates. Sponsor us. Give a bit of glass, mate, and we'll get your logo on. Exactly. <laughs> Talking of logos, this is the Art Monthly Talk Show, and I think we're going to come to the end now, probably. Um, I've plugged it once. I'm going to do it again. But um, first of all, thank you all very much for coming on the show. And... Uh, we are very grateful to all our writers who always come on and write this often at short notice so tonight I'd like to thank uh, John Parton George Vasey Catherine Lloyd and Jamie Sutcliffe for coming on the show which is the April 2019 Art Monthly issue 425 that's what we're referring to texts which are written in there so we hope you'll listen and you can do it read it I mean I'm sorry and I hope you'll subscribe which you can do, as I said before, for £39 only for a direct debit sub for 10 issues. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks again, guests. Goodbye.